um, with RUF. Uh, RUF, if you're new, stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we are a campus ministry here on campus. Um, and um, uh, we, RUF exists for both the believer and uh, the spiritual skeptic, for the convinced and the unconvinced, um, for the bad kid and also for the good kid, um, for the student whose your entire wardrobe was purchased at the deacon shop, and for the student who wouldn't be caught dead wearing tie-dye at the Joel. Um, basically what I'm trying to say is um, RUF is for everyone. And um, whoever you are, wherever you're coming for, we're glad you're here uh, to be with us tonight. Um, welcome to RUF. Um, let me adjust this somehow. There we go. Um, so worlds collided for me uh, this past Saturday. Um, I was uh, listening to NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I don't know if you all listen to this. And Ice Cube was on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. So Ice Cube, if you're unfamiliar with his work, uh, he, um, is, he grew up in South Central L.A., straight out of Compton. Um, he was one of the founding members of NWA, and uh, he's now a famous musician and actor. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a nerdy news quiz show on NPR on Saturdays, hosted by a guy named Peter Sagal. And one of the things they do on the show is they call up a famous person, and they play a news quiz with them. And after a brief conversation, uh, Peter Sagal invites Ice Cube to play this like news quiz with him, and they call it, Today Was a Very Bad Day. Um, there's an there's a NWA song called Today Was a Good Day. Um, not Okay. Well, um, so in it, they give him the first half of a story, and he has to fill in. He's given, like, multiple choice, and he has to fill in the rest of the story. So um, so here it goes. Peter Sagal says, all right, Cube, just a couple of weeks ago, and this is the first question on the quiz, a Virginia prisoner thought he was having a good day when his wife finally came to visit him in jail. Turned out it was a bad day. Why? Is it A, First thing his wife said to him in front of the guards was, Good news, honey. They haven't found the money you gave me to hide. Or B, his other wife came to visit him at the same time. Or C, he called his wife by the wrong name and she broke a chair over his head. So what do you guys think it is? A, B, or C? Ice Cube answered correctly. The answer is B. Uh, His other wife came to visit him at the same time. Um, All right, so another question. They asked him three questions. This is the third one. Peter Sagal said this, in May of last year, a driver in Florida drove his truck into a fire hydrant. Now, that would be a bad day all by itself, but then what happened? Did A, the water sprayed all over his shipment of cotton candy, causing him $30,000 in losses? Or B, the fire hydrant was in front of Tiger Woods' ex-wife's house, and she came out with a golf club yelling, not again. (laughs) Or C, he got out of his truck to inspect the hydrant, locked himself out of the truck. Meanwhile, the flooding from the fire hydrant caused a sinkhole. He kicked in the back window of his truck, got in to drive away, but he drove backwards into the sinkhole. Which one is it? C, C, yeah. So Ice Cube said, C, I like that one. That sounds wild. I like that one. And Peter Seals says, that's exactly what happened, Cube. All right. So funny stories, um, but they they reveal a common human problem um, that we often find ourselves in trouble and we're in need of help. And the lie that we believe is that most of the time we actually don't need help. Um, we can do life pretty well on our own, right? We, um, life is supposed to be easy. It's something that I can accomplish on my own without the intervention of others. But the reality is that we all need help in life. 
A friend of mine, Robert Cunningham, put it this way. He said, autonomy is an illusion at best. This is a terrifying reality that actually brings us comfort. I'll say it again. Autonomy is an illusion at best. This is a terrifying reality that actually brings us comfort. Because autonomy is illusion. The belief that we can do life on our own is actually a lie. It's a terrifying reality. We all know it, you know, but we do our best to avoid this. But it actually brings us comfort. It's only as we acknowledge that this is an illusion that we're able to ask for help. So tonight we're going to be talking about help. Um, the outline for my talk tonight is on the back side of your bulletin. Um, and uh, this was as we're going to be going through this. We're going to say, where do we look for help? Where help actually comes from? And how do we live as people who are able to say help? Um, and we're going to look at this question of help uh, through one of the Psalms tonight. We're going to be reading Psalm 121, which is also written on your bulletin. And I um, invite you to look there uh, as I read this. This is God's word for us this evening. Um, he gives it to us because he loves us. This is Psalm 121. It's a song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall strike you by day. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for tonight, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word, and ask now that by the power of your spirit, you would help us, um, help us to see our need for your help, um, teach us to cry to you um, for help, and in this would you show us Jesus. Uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. So um, the first half of this semester, up through spring break, during this time together, we're going to be reading the songs, the songs of ascents. And the songs of ascents are Psalms 120 through 134, and we're going to be studying a section of these together. And these uh, are 15 Psalms, 120 through 134, that were written for God's people, um, for Israel, as they made the journey from, uh, from where they lived to Jerusalem for the feasts. And there were three major feasts, feasts in the Jewish calendar. There was the, um, the, the Feast of Passover. There was the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Booths. Uh, do you all remember that, that tent that was set up in front of the old pit this fall? Do you guys remember that the Jewish study, the Jewish um, student group put up? That was the booth. So they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. So these are, these are um, celebrations that the Jews still celebrate. The Feast of Tabernacles, which is Booths, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Pentecost. And so uh, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, would travel from all over Palestine, all over ancient Israel, to Jerusalem three times a year. And uh, Psalms 120 through 134 were their songbook for this journey. Uh, and it was given to them by God so that they could um, pray their lives to God as they're walking um, from their home to Jerusalem. That that journey to Jerusalem would somehow serve as a metaphor for their lives. And that the songs in these psalms actually gave them some structure to actually make sense of who they were and who God was and what they were called to be in the world. Um, they were written to help God's people pray um, and pray specifically pray their lives to God. 
And so Psalm 121 recounts the experience of walking, for, walking to Jerusalem, surrounded by the arid hills of Palestine. And so if you were walking from your home to Jerusalem, you would be reading the hills, reading the landscape, and praying to God in response. And this journey would have been scary. Right? This is ancient Israel. There's no highway system. There's no highway cops. Um, rather, there were these well-worn paths through the valleys that were, would have been known to be dangerous. And if you walked this route, you would have been very um, exposed. You would have felt vulnerable in need of help. And this psalm acknowledges three possibilities of harm to you if you were a traveler. Verse 3, uh, if you tripped on a rock... Uh, That'd be bad, right? Sprained an ankle. Um, Verse 6, getting sunstroke. And also in verse 6, getting moonstroke. All right, so I'm going to talk about these. All right, tripping on a rock, right? If you're traveling by foot, you're always in danger of stepping on a loose stone and spraining your ankle. That'd be a big deal if by foot was your method of travel. Getting sunstroke. A person traveling on foot with long exposure to the sun can get heat stroke. Um, If you don't have access to water and shade, sunstroke will actually kill you. This is not something we talk about a lot because we always have our Nalgenes with us and we like, we go indoors. But as I was reading about this, like Civil War records are filled with stories of guys getting so, um, so beaten down by the sun that they would be like unable to speak for days at a time because the sun was so strong. Um, And getting moonstroke was a thing too. All right, what is moonstroke? Um, Well, it was believed at the time that if a person traveled, Under the moon, so for long distances at night, under the pressures of fatigue and anxiety, that they would become emotionally ill. And so it was believed, before we had science to tell us what was actually going on in our brain chemistry, that being outside at night under the moon and doing work or being awake and being anxious was actually the cause of anxiety, that you were actually moon-stricken was how you became mentally ill. Um, we actually, we still hold on to this language today. Our word for being crazy, lunatic, is from the Latin luna or, or moon. So like a lunatic is someone who's been struck by the moon. Um, so, and we can update this list, right? We've got uh, tripping on a rock, sunstroke, moonstroke. There's other things that uh, when we were in, in the journey of life, things that, that we could plan against but would still could possibly harm us. I mean, thinking today, uh, the unplanned troubles of... Um, Somebody with a radicalized ideology and an explosive device. Or um, disease that can break out without warning and bring an onslaught of pain and even death. Or just accidents, a car accident, um, or an accident in the kitchen, or accident on a sports field. Like, just whatever, without warning, any of these can interrupt our carefully laid plans. Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor, writes this. He says, we take precautions by learning safety rules, fastening our seatbelt, taking out insurance policies, but we cannot guarantee our own security. So in, face of, in the face of these potential threats to our own security, what do we do? Well, in verse 1, the psalmist writes, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? You can imagine scanning the horizon for help, looking up to the mountains above and asking does my help come from these hills? And when we think about hills, we can think about a couple different things. The first thing would be fear. Um, like I said earlier, these paths would have been a dangerous place. There would have been thieves and robbers who lived among the mountains who would prey on travelers. So perhaps looking to the hills would be a posture of fear. Where's my help going to come from? Because I'm scared I'll be attacked 
by robbers. Um, when I think of this, the thing that pops into mind is from the fir- my mind is the, from the first Star Wars movie when Luke Skywalker is attacked by the Sand People. You guys know what I'm talking about? The the yeah, ooh, 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 the, you got it, like the the Tuscan Raiders, right? That's what happens when you walk through the mountains unprotected. Sand People get you. It's scary. Um, so we look to the hills in fear, and we also look to the hills. We can also look to the hills to help us. We have this pervasive belief in our culture that nature can actually save us from the brokenness and sin of our own lives, right? I remember um, when I was in high school, I was backpacking in New Mexico, uh, and my friend Joel was with me, and he said to me, and if we were out here all the time, we wouldn't have any problems. Like, think of the way that we look to nature to be the help that we need to fix our lives. Last week, Mary Clark, my wife, and I watched this movie Wild together. Are y'all familiar with this? It tells the story of a woman named Cheryl Strayed. She wrote um, a memoir about hiking the Pacific Coast Trail, which goes from Mexico to Canada through California and Washington and, and um, Oregon. And um, the movie tells the story, and uh, it tells the story of a woman who lost her mother to cancer and then spiraled into a drug and sex addiction to the point of destroying her marriage and her friendships and even her own life. And so in order to fix her life, she looked to the hills. Like she, she looked to the Pacific Coast Trail, and she hiked alone from Mexico to Canada. It's a powerful story, and the journey was, was really good for her, but it didn't have the power to help her at her deepest level. So sometimes we look to the hills in fear, Sometimes we look to the hills to help us. But the ancient Jews, um, the the Hebrews actually would have seen something else in this. One theologian writes this. He says that during the time the psalm was written and sung, Palestine, the ancient Israel area, was overrun with popular pagan worship. And much of this pagan religion was, was practiced on the hilltops. Shrines were set up, groves of trees were planted, and then sacred prostitutes, both male and female, were provided People were lured to the shrines to engage in acts of worship that would enhance the fertility of the land. They'd make you feel good. They would protect you from, the, from evil. So do you fear the sun's heat? Well, go to the sun priest and pay for protection against the sun god. Are you fearful of the evil influence of the moonlight? Well, then go to the moon priestess and buy an amulet. Are you haunted by the demons that can use any pebble under your foot to trip you? We'll go to the shrine and learn the magic formula to ward off the demons. This is the kind of thing that an ancient Jew would have seen on the hills as he set out on this journey to Jerusalem 2,500 years ago. And, y'all, we're no different. We always looked to the next experience, the next thing we buy, or the next sexual encounter to save us from the things that we fear. But a look to the hills for help will always end in disappointment. And for all of their majesty and beauty, they're just hills. And for all the promises of safety against the dangers of the road and all the alluring offers of the priests and priestesses, they all are finally lies. As the prophet Jeremiah put it, truly the hills are an illusion. Um, the, The hills are an illusion. They are the orgies on the mountain. And Psalm 121 says to this, no. Ultimately, my hope does not come from the hills, but it comes from the Lord. So where does our help actually come from? Well, look at verse 2. The psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord. And look at how the Lord is described in this psalm. In verse 2, he's the maker of heaven and earth. 
In verse 3 and 4, we're told that he won't fall asleep on you. Verse 5, he is your shade to protect you from the sun and the moon, from physical pain and from emotional pain. And in verse 7, he is the one who protects you from all evil. And in all of this, God is described as your keeper. The word keep is used six times to describe God in this passage. So what does it mean that God is your keeper? Well, keeper, um, it's like he's a guardian. He's the one who guards He's not an impersonal executive giving orders from on high, but rather he is the present help for every step of our lives. One pastor puts it this way. He says, the way to tell the Christian story is not to describe its trials and tribulations, but rather to name and describe the God who preserves, accompanies, and rules us. So by telling us that God is our keeper, he's saying that he's not going anywhere. And we see this in Christ. He has so bound himself to us that he has suffered death on the cross that he would keep you and not lose you. God calls himself our keeper and he calls you to say help. So how do we live as people who are able to say help? I got a phone call from my sister today um, while I was working on this, um, working on this talk. And she called because one year ago today, um, her husband, Andrew, died suddenly and tragically. And so this is the one-year anniversary of my brother-in-law's death. And she called yesterday. She called yesterday. Oh, I talked to her yesterday. And um, I asked her to call me if she wanted me to pray for her. So this afternoon, I, she called me, and we talked on the phone for a little bit. Um, and uh, we read Psalm 121 together. Um, and we said help to God together. And this past year has been really hard, as you can imagine, for my family. Um, we, as a family, we're not particularly good at asking for help from each other, from anyone, really. And um, this year, God has, has begun to teach us together to say help, um, to cry out together help, because we are in this impossible situation with, with Andrew's death. This is so scary for us, right? To say help together. We work so hard, like we, us in here, we work so hard to look like we've got it all together, to appear like we don't need any help. But this is the essence of prayer, saying help to God. Um, There's a pastor named Paul Zoll who writes this. He says, a prayer of grace is simply plain speech addressed to God from the standpoint of human need. It's saying, God, I am so upset, I don't know what to do. The situation is beyond me. If you don't do something about this, nobody will, and I can't. Please, dear God, help me, for Christ's sake, amen. So what are the situations in y'all's lives that feel like they are beyond you? Is it thinking about your workload this semester? Or uh, the social pressures that you're facing this semester? Or maybe it's your loneliness for lack of a social life. Um, Or maybe it's just how much your family hurts. God is calling you in his grace to cry out for help. And he promises that he will answer your prayers. I want to close by telling you all um, a story of what this looks like in action. What it looks like for a group of people together to say help. 
So Mary Clark and I spent New Year's in Richmond, where we are, um, where we lived before we moved down to Winston Salem, and we spent New Year's Eve with some really close friends of ours, about twelve of us on New Year's Eve. Um, it was a really great weekend reconnecting with um, old friends, and we returned to Winston Salem on Sunday night after church. And then on Monday morning, we got some awful news from our friends Bo and Amanda. Um, here's what they say. This is what they, they wrote. For at least a month, Rosalie, who's their three-year-old daughter, you know, she's been having what appeared to be upper respiratory symptoms and fevers with the not uncommon low energy level. Surely at this time of year, at the cusp of fall and winter, viruses have percolated through every daycare and preschool in Richmond, and all parents buckle down the hatches for a winter of runny noses and occasional fevers. Her fevers had seemingly dissipated, but something was off, a little too much lounging on the couch, a little too slow in her walk. A mild, low-grade temperature emerged with a general paler complexion on New Year's weekend, and what we were considering a case of the dwindles was clearly something more. The trip to the, pediatri- the pediatrician's office ended with a parent's, one of the parents' worst nightmares. They said, your daughter possibly has leukemia. So last Monday, on January 4th, Rosalie was diagnosed with acute B-cell leukemia. And Bo and Amanda set up a CaringBridge page to update their friends and family on her progress and her fight against childhood leukemia. And this is what they write. I got this in an email today. Say the fight is not Rosalie versus leukemia, though in part it is. Truthfully, it is corporate, it is collective, and it is community. It is all of us as one body, shoulder to shoulder, arms linked, protecting and surrounding this beautiful princess from those things that are intending to harm her. Childhood leukemia is not fair, and it is just further proof that neither is life. But what we see now as clear as day is that there is a God. This world is broken. We are broken. But he loves us. He surrounds his children with people who care, with people who refuse to stand idly as the cherished things of this world fall apart. Now, how in the world can two parents have the strength and courage to write that in the midst, in the hour of their fear and grief? Well, it's because through faith they are able to cry out to Jesus and to know him as their keeper. Jesus Christ is the one who keeps them, and he is the one who keeps us. We don't deserve to be kept because we run to anything else but God looking for help. But God in Christ has run to us as our keeper and has done all that is necessary to keep and guard us as his own. And he did this work in his death on the cross. For on the cross, God removed his hand of shade over Jesus, and the moon struck him by night. The night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was in anguish and in agony, and his friends fell asleep in his greatest hour of need. And he experienced the pain and anxiety of knowing that he was headed to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And Luke's gospel records that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The moon struck him by night, and the sun struck him by day. For as Jesus was hung on the cross in the middle of the day, and, he, and as he died, he cried out through parched lips, I thirst. On the cross, God removed 
His hand of shade over Jesus. The moon struck him by night. The sun struck him by day. And rather than the Lord keeping him from all evil, he let all evil find its resting place in him and on him. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us. God made him who knew no evil to be evil for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how does God keep us? How do we live as people who are able to say help? We look to Jesus in faith. He who was crushed for our sin so that in him we would be kept from all evil. Eugene Peterson um, writes that all the water in all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside. And this is the promise of this psalm, that in Christ, God guards you from every evil. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, help. Um, Would you help us to learn to cry out together for your help, knowing that you are our keeper, our guard, um, the one who shields us by day and night, the one who keeps us from all evil. Lord, help us, we pray, uh, for Christ's sake. Amen.